Erev Tov, good evening. We are back in our Expanding Horizons Shu. We are going to be discussing the final uh, segment of our section on Sanhedrin, the story of the Sanhedrin, the, nest, the attempts to revive a Sanhedrin. I promise you today that we would discuss the last modern attempts to revive a Sanhedrin. I told you that there have been many attempts throughout history and I cannot cover all of them, but this one is one that speaks to my heart because not only is it current, but it comes from a Chacham, who is a Chacham that is very dear to my heart. And as this shiul is intended in general to expose us to different Chachamim that have created this vision behind Shiviti, I feel that I'm, I'm a little bit emotional introducing you to this uh, special rabbi, who I don't know that I formally done it, at least not outside of my San Diego community. Has anyone here ever heard of Rabbi Yehuda Leib Fishman HaKohen Maimon? HaKohen Fishman Maimon, whatever order. Have you heard of him before? From now, I'm just going to call him Rabbi Yehuda Leib Maimon. It's just the easier version of his name. Has anyone ever seen his name printed in any books anywhere? Possibly. I wouldn't own any books from Mossad Harav Kuk. Most likely his name is in the front cover of your book. You just never noticed it until now. Mm-hmm. Worth going to take a look. Rabbi Yudah Leib Maimon, though he has a Sephardic sounding last name, uh, is actually one of the famous rabbis of Ashkenaz who were from the early uh, participants and, and founders, pioneers of the Zionist movement as we know it, the political Zionist movement that ultimately established the state of Israel. Those of you who are familiar with my stances on Zionism and the history of Zionism and that Zionism didn't start when uh, modern secular political Zionists will tell you that Zionism started. Nonetheless, this contribution of Yubudadli Maimon to the Zionist movement is tremendous. He was the rabbi who was sitting to the right of, I think it's to the right of, uh, rabbi Dev, uh, rabbi, uh, Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion. When he was announcing, declaring the independence of the state of Israel, you've probably seen that video. The Ben Gurion gets up and he says, uh, I'm announcing the establishment of the state of Israel. If you ever hear that recording of the Ben Gurion announcing the independence of the state of Israel, you will also hear in the background a voice very clearly reciting, that voice is none other than the voice of Rabbi Yehuda Leib Maimon, who we're going to deal with his writings today. Yehuda Leib Maimon was not actually a fisherman. From what I understand, uh, one of his ancestors had to borrow somebody else's passport back in Europe. You know, you think Jews just share things. Jews also share passports every once in a while. He shared his passport. My fisherman ended up getting stuck to their last name. And their name became Fishman, but his father or grandfather already used to use the name Maimon when he signed his name due to the fact that his mother's side of the family uh, has a claim that they are descendants of the Rambam, Ben Moshe Ben Maimon, and because of that, they always refer to themselves Maimon, even though they were most definitely Ashkenazi Jews. Rabbi Hudali Maimon was born in 1875. Uh, essentially in the region that was part of the Russian Empire. He dies in 1962 at the age of 86, and he uh, was in Tel Aviv, Yafo. So he started his life in Russia, ended up in Yafo. That means that he was around for the first 14 years 
of the state of Israel, which he had worked so hard to establish. Rabbi Yudalib Maimon was so concerned that the narrative surrounding the founding of the state of Israel, more particularly the religious narrative surrounding the founding of the state of Israel, would become forgotten to his children and to the new generation that was being raised in Eretz that he actually wrote a book. I have a new copy of this book. There's nothing new about the book. They put a nice cover on it, but the printing inside is still the same old print that anybody else has. Um, this book is called Leman Sion and for the sake of Zion, I will not be silent. And essentially, he leaves behind his memoirs regarding Zionism, political Zionism, the activism, the traveling from city to city and state to state and country to country, fundraising for the, the Zionist movement, ultimately his joy in being alive. He was always bragging that I was there to recite Shekhyanu when the modern state of Israel was established. For him, that was a source of pride. Yudale Maimon merits to not only be there when the first Israeli government is formed, but he was part of the first and second Israeli government. And the first time around, he was there as a rabbi. More uh, formally, that position evolved into what we know as the uh, the minister of religion. As you know, Israel has a very unique relationship with religion. There was some news going on in the last two days that you might have picked up on on conversions and things like that that has been shaking up the Jewish world a little bit. Now, Israel is not really clear if it's a Jewish country, if it's a democratic country, if there is a separation of church and state, if there's no separation of church and state. Uh, it does a really bad job at pretending that it falls into either one of those two categories. And Rebudale Maimon, he served as the first minister of religion of the state of Israel. It's very important because his sister, his sister, actually uh, her name was Ada Maimon, she served as the representative of the anti-religious Mapai party at the time in the Knesset. So he was the minister of religion. He was pushing this dream of a Sanhedrin, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, to create a religious state of Israel. And his sister was in charge of the exact opposite movement, and both of them sat across from each other in Knesset. It was a very unique relationship. His sister never had children of her own. Um, out of a feminist ideal, she chose to never get married or to have children. And essentially her legacy died with her. She did leave behind all kinds of writings and things like that. His family was very uh, proficient, very well uh, not just well spoken, very well written. His daughter, Geula Bat Yehuda, um, I, have, I have the biography that she wrote about her father. So it's a, it's a big book. She wrote many other books. I have some of her works at home. She's equally poetic to her father, but as I was telling somebody today in the morning, the Rebbe Maimon, aside from being a Tamich Chacham that I resonate with deeply, he's a Tamich Chacham who perhaps has the most poetic Hebrew of any other rabbi that I've ever read, maybe even in my life. His writing style is beautiful, it's captivating, he's charismatic. And many of the ideas that he tried to bring awareness to, unfortunately died with him. Perhaps most notable was his desire, his, his dream, his, his mission of his life was to reconvene a Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh. And that's exactly where this shiur fits in, to the last two that we had together. Before I tell you anything more about Rehudalei Maimon, there's something that he writes in the end of one of his books, perhaps his magnum opus, is this book called Sarei HaMe'ah. There's a newer version out today. Remember, the newer version is just this version with a nicer cover on it. So uh, you can buy this in actually many bookstores. Believe it or not, I don't think anyone knows what it is, but it's a, it's a very famous work of six volumes discussing all kinds of Tamidei Chami, mostly Ashkenazi Jewish history, 
minus the sixth volume, which he discusses Rav Uziel and other Chachamim that he had the privilege to work with and under. If you look at the Google Classroom, there should be a photo that I attached of Rabbi Maimon visiting Baghdad together with Rav Uziel uh, as a delegate. There was a, an attempt to uh, fundraise and bring Jews to Eretz Yisrael in those early years of political Zionism. Primarily, though, Rabbi Yehudalei Maimon was a student of a famous rabbi called Rabbi Yechiel Michal Halevi Epstein. Have you heard of him before? Who was the Rabbi Yechiel Michal Epstein? He wrote a very famous book. I heard of him, but I don't know the book. Very good. Aruch HaShulchan. Very good. Aruch HaShulchan. That's why my mom heard of him. Aruch HaShulchan. Uh, Aruch HaShulchan is perhaps the most famous Ashkenazi work on the Shulchan Aruch in the last 150 years. Uh, it has steep competition with the Mishnah Bua, and there's its own politics uh, between those two camps, the people who study which one on the, on the Shulchan Aruch. The Aruch HaShulchan, Rabbi Yechiel Michel Epstein, writes in the introduction of one of his books that he himself comes from a Sephardic family, and that Epstein is a, when his family fled the Spanish Inquisition, they went to North Africa, from North Africa, where they became, they were Benvenestes, they became Ben Benishti, like in Morocco, that name became that way, and then on their way back into Poland, uh, Ben Benishti became Epstein, and that's essentially how they got their name. But he always considered himself to be a, from the stock of Sephardim from Spain. There's some fascinating first-hand encounters that Ributale Maimon shares about his rabbi. His father, his father, uh, was a student of another rabbi by the name of the Malbim. Have you heard of the Malbim before? Otherwise known as the Malbim. Yeah. The Malbim is a commentary on the, the Tanakh. The Tanakh. Different, yeah, a beautiful commentary. has a very interesting and, and, and difficult personal life. So that was his father's rabbi. He himself was a student of the Aruch HaShulchan. He once asked his rabbi, a teaching that resonates very well with me. He once asked his rabbi, he said, Rabbi, you are this great Aruch HaShulchan. Why do you always insist on living in this little town over here where nobody sees you and nobody knows you. Why don't you go take a job in a big city? They want you as an Abedin. They want you as a chief rabbi. Why do you stay here? He says, you know, as a rabbi, there's always two things that you know. Two things are, people are not going to like you and you're always going to be broke. He said, the two things that you know. People aren't going to like you, you're always going to be broke. He said, in a small town, I have a few people who don't like me and I'm broke. He said, in a big town, I have a lot of people who don't like me and I'll be just as broke. So why should I leave a small town to go to a big town? For which glory? For which purpose? What's the, what's the need for that? Uh, at the end of his six-volume work, he writes a letter to his wife. I just want to share that with you because I think it's something special. Uh, there's two PDFs attached there. One of them says, Sarei HaMe'a. And one says, Chidusha Sanhedrin. Click on the PDF that says, Sarei HaMe'a. So it's attached to the Zoom link. Whatever Google Classroom you're in, go look for that Zoom link, and you should see a PDF that says in it, Sarei HaMe'a. So page one just tells you, Sarei HaMe'a, Rishumot al-Gdolei Israel, memoirs about great giants of the Jewish people. On the next page, he dedicates his book. It's sad to me that it's rare to find rabbis who do this anymore. It's not, it's not religious anymore to do such a thing. I don't know what that means, but it's what it is. He dedicates his book to his wife. L'ra'ayati Batya, to my, my wife, Batya. 
Hayati is more than a wife. It's a, like a, it's from the term friend. Ezrati b'chaim, my partner in life. Mincha, this book is dedicated to you. It's a gift to you. In the back of the book, and so you're pretty much skipping 300 pages, you'll see it's page three of that PDF. Page three of that PDF. He wants to give a final letter of acknowledgement, and here he dedicates the entire series to his wife. In those first and second paragraphs, he shares a story about the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov used to rent a home, a little tiny home, from a Jewish person in the city of Mezhbuz, the founder of Hasidut. And with whatever money he made, you know, giving brachot to people, they would give him tzedakah. From that little bit of money, he always scraped together some money to pay rent, a little bit of money to give his wife that they should, should take care of the expenses of the home, food, clothes, whatever else needed to be. And then the rest he gave to tzedakah. And the Baal was famous for saying that he had a hard time going to sleep at night when he still had money left over in his house. And his wife used to take every day from the money that, she, that he gave her, she would take a little bit off and take a little bit off and take a little bit off. And ultimately, she bought the Baal Shem Tov a house. She bought him his own house. Something modest, but that's where he lived. And at the Chanukah Tabayit, when they put up the mezuzot in the house, the Baal Shem Tov said the following words. If you look in the second paragraph on the page, it's one, two, three, four, five lines up. Bishat Chanukah Tabayit, when they were dedicating the house, Amar HaBaal Shem Tov, the Baal Shem Tov said, HaChacham Mikol Adam Amar, the wisest of all men, King Shalomo says in Mishleim, that a home and a, a fortune is something you inherit from your forefathers. And from Hashem, you inherit a wise and discerning wife. Meaning, you can't inherit a wife. You can only inherit money. But a wife you don't inherit. That's from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And he says, the pasuk really means the following. My mom always says this. But at my engagement party, she, she elaborated on this pasuk. My mother gave a derasha on this pasuk. Uh, Ima, this is a now a different reading of that pasuk. The Baal Shem Tov said that a home and a fortune, you can receive that through an inheritance. From your parents. But what if a person doesn't inherit anything from their parents? Their parents didn't leave them anything. So now it has to come from Hashem. Your home, your money, everything that you need has to come from Hashem. As HaKadosh Baruch mazmin ish, isha maskelet. That HaKadosh Baruch then blesses a man with a wise wife. Shehi yodat atzamtzem etzorcheya, vhi bona bayit abala. That she ultimately knows how to manage the finance as well, and she knows how to build a home for her husband. So in the event that a person doesn't inherit money from their forefathers, he can inherit a home from HaKadosh Baruch through the divine messenger, which is his wife. And then Rabbi Yudale Maimon shares the following story. Says, I also married Kirayati, then my, my wife, Batya Bat Rabbi Shlomo, Batya, the daughter of Shlomo. She didn't only take care of me and my health. She was helping me. She was my partner in collecting this great library that I have. Rabbi Yudale Maimon passed away with 40,000 books in his library. What do you think about that number? 40,000 books. It's a, it's a, I can't even imagine the bookcases you have to have for that. From my young age, I was used to buying books. My father, he's having nightmares hearing the story. I only bought books that they weren't expensive books. 
לאחר נישואי, after I got married, רציתי לקנות לי ש"ס. I wanted to buy myself a set of Talmud, a ש"ס. אבל מפני גובה המחיר לא יכולתי להביא on the top of the next page, uh, page 4, את הברכה הזאת לתוך ביתי. But because of the price, the steep price, I wasn't able to bring this blessing into my home. והייתי מוכרח להשתמש במסכתות שאולות, and I had to borrow volumes of the Talmud from other people. אבל כפעם בפעם היו עולים בזיכרוני דבריו של רבי יצחק קפנתון בספרו דרכי הגמרא. So sometimes I remember the name, the words of רבי יצחק קפנתון, if I'm not mistaken, and I hope I'm not pronouncing his name correctly, he was the rabbi of רבי יוסף קארו, מרן השולחן ערוך. In his book דרכי הגמרא, he says, הקורא בספרים שעונים, עליו הכתוב אומר, והיו חייך תולים לך מנגד. He says it's not a good thing to borrow books from other people, rather you should own your own books. I have a very hard time taking books from a library. Just the thought that I'm going to have to give them back in two weeks from now, it a, a, has a disastrous effect on my, my ability to sit down and read a book calmly and get to the book. Okay, it's a problem. Not everyone has that problem. Once in the beginning of the winter, I was invited to the city of Berdichev to take care of some Zionist matters there. Before I left, I told my wife in passing through conversation, if only I had the money, that I could purchase in Berdichev, I guess it was a bigger town, I could buy a beautiful set of shas over there. He shalalti, my wife asked me, how much does a shas cost in Berdichev? He said, and I told her that sadly, that I need 50 rubles. 50 rubles must be a huge amount of money. I can imagine a shas today costs a good thousand dollars if you want to buy a regular shas, a thousand dollars. So I don't know how much is that in pounds. About 1,500 pounds, could it be? No, less, other way around. Other way around, right? So it's like 750 pounds, could it make sense? Okay. Okay. Amarli, he said, she told me that she's been saving 50 rubles. She said, I, I was waiting to buy myself a fur coat for the winter, but I have 50 rubles. Take this money and go buy yourself a Talmud. But the beauty of this story, unlike those Hasidic stories you hear where the family is dying of hunger and nobody has any food and nobody has any drink and the husband goes and buys an etrog for a million dollars and the whole family dies of hunger. You know those stories? Every Sukkot they hear these stories about people wasting all of their family's money to buy something that you don't have to have even if you don't have money for. Uh, here, she's giving him the money. She wants him to spend the money for this. Said, and I was able to buy not just the Babylonian Talmud, but also Yerushalmi Talmud, Dfus Jitomer, this is a special printing of the Talmud for a different conversation. A beautiful copy. In that book, that set of books is still in my library. And then I said in my heart, Who will find a woman of valor? Her husband's heart trusts her. And he won't be lacking shalal. Shalal, he says, is in Gematria Shas. A man who has a wife like his will not be lacking a shas in his home. And from that moment on, I began growing my library. Even though I lived in a rental apartment and I didn't have any money, he said, but, but I still kept growing my library in this little place. And the books were stacks on top of stacks of books all around my house. He said, and once when I had to leave Eretz Israel, 
to go on behalf of the Mizrahi organization to fundraise in America. I was stuck there for about half a year. And when I came home to Israel, I found a beautiful home. And there were custom-made bookcases for my books. And then I remember the words of the Baal Shem Tov. And therefore I bless my wife who bought me this home while I was gone in America and who put bookcases for my books. I bless her. She shall live a long and healthy life. And may she continue to be given strength to safeguard my library. Which is the soul of my soul. And for me, these words remind me a lot of uh, our Rabbanita. It's okay to embarrass her in public. Tell you the truth is, Baruch uh, Hashem, people not liking us, now I'm in a group of people who like us. But, uh, you know, finding money to buy books is a difficult thing. The Rabbanit always tells me the following things. She says, listen, if you go buy food, you go buy Yanwar, you go buy Goya. So it lasts for a few hours, then, you know, uh, I won't mention here what happens, but the food disappears afterward. But if you buy Sifrei Kodesh, you buy books and you have them on your shelf, so the set of Rambam that you buy, it's not going anywhere. It's there. It's going to be there forever. And Baruch Hashem, my home, I don't have 40,000 books, but it's a goal to reach one day, Bezalat Hashem. But my library is also Nishmat uh, Nishmati. I'm lucky, I think I'm even luckier than Rabbi Yehuda Le Maimon, is that my library is not just my library, it's my wife's library also. My wife has her own bookcases on top of bookcases on top of bookcases. She has her own stack of books that don't fit on bookcases. And Bezalat Hashem is Barach. I think that uh, this relationship here between Rabbi Yehuda Le Maimon and his wife Batya is something unique, it's something special. And it's something that in a world that we live in today where, where everything people talk about is how husbands and wives don't get along with each other. Nobody, everything is a glorified roommate. They're just suffering to be married. All kinds of things like that. Okay, we tell jokes, but really it's not true. Really there are people in the world who find people that they really love and they're really close to. And I always tell people, for those of you who are still looking, don't settle for less. Don't settle for a person who wouldn't give up their fur coat to buy you a library. And don't buy a library with somebody else's money to get a fur coat. But there is a world in where beautiful relationships exist. And our Chachamim, contrary to what you might see in the streets, our Chachamim had beautiful relationships uh, with their spouses. That being said, this was an absolute detour. It has nothing to do with the Sanhedrin, but everything to do with setting up an image for you of what, who, who was Rabbi Yehuda Maimon. And being that I read that piece, we're going to have to run through just a few selected paragraphs. Uh, from the 17-page PDF that I sent your way. So if you just open up the PDF to the Sanhedrin PDF there, I think it's called Chidush Sanhedrin. I titled it. It should be also attached to the Zoom invitation. Now this is 17 pages from a, from a book. This book is so dear to me that I own two different printings of it, two different copies of it. Uh, you can't find it really anywhere today unless you're looking for a used copy. Rabbi Yehuda Leib Maimon spent his life not just trying to found a state of Israel, which he ultimately was successful. This Zionist ideal, this dream that he had signed up for, ultimately bore fruit, and it, he was there. Imagine all those years, those people who tried to found the state of Israel, and they didn't make it to see that day. I think a lot about Rav Kook. Rav Kook's dream was to see an independent state of Israel in the Jewish homeland, but he never merited to see it. He passed away in the 30s, I never saw it. Rav Uziel, who spent his life fighting for such an ideal, he dies in 1953. He spends almost barely five years in the modern state of Israel. Married to spend 14 years of the end of his life in an independent Jewish homeland. But that wasn't enough for him. It wasn't enough. For him, his dream was to reconvene a Sanhedrin. It's not enough to just build a country, 
a new country, a new Jewish homeland, a new Jewish state of Israel needs a new Jewish vision for its religious future. And in order for that to happen, there has to be a Sanhedrin. You cannot rejuvenate a religion without its national Supreme Court, without its Sanhedrin that, that would be able to make those decisions on behalf of the whole Jewish people. And he spent his life early, already from the early 1900s, maybe even already 1910, 1911, you hear him talking about the, uh, the Sanhedrin. And then until the day he dies, and this idea of the Sanhedrin unfortunately seems to have died with him. His plans for a Sanhedrin, though gained a little bit of momentum and a little bit of traction, was met with such bitter opposition. And if not opposition, then just apathy. Apathy by the rabbinic establishment, disbelief by the lay people. Who needs a Sanhedrin? What do we need a Sanhedrin for? And Rabbi Yehuda Maimon takes this vision with him to the grave. And I feel that today we might do him just a little bit of justice by keeping this vision alive here with us in this Ben Midrash. I have here a telegram that I printed last night. Uh, this telegram was sent by, in 1958, so around May of 1958, just 10 years after the founding of the State of Israel. This tele uh, telegram was sent by the Union of Orthodox Rabbis in America, Rabbi Eliezer Silver, Rabbi Pinchas Taitz, Rabbi Meir Cohen. Uh, this is a letter essentially requesting that Rabbi Yehuda Maimon be excommunicated for his blasphemous suggestions, most notably for his um, speech towards the Briskarav, the Griz, as he was called. The Briskarav was perhaps Rabbi Yehuda Leib Maimon's greatest opponent to this idea of a Sanhedrin. He was a notorious anti-Zionist in general regarding the modern state of Israel, but he could not fathom the thought that there was even somebody who was trying to found the Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim, and he spent his life fighting Rabbi Yudalei Maimon on this idea. Rabbi Yudalei Maimon must have said something uh, to the effect of, uh, something that wasn't so kind towards the Briska Rav, and these American rabbis decided to get involved and to uh, send a, a telegraph telegram to Israel saying that he needs to do Teshuvah, and if not, that all these terrible halachot uh, and the Rambam and Shulchan would apply to Leib Maimon for blaspheming the holy uh, brisker Rav. Let's open up the PDF here. So the title of the book is Chidush Sanhedrin, the re-establishment of a Sanhedrin in our newly re-established state of Israel. And if you look on page 2 of the PDF, I want to read to you this page. This booklet. I scanned these pages for you, so this is not a complete PDF file. These are just the scans of some pages I want you to see. This booklet was printed in, in installments. Parakim, Parakim, They were printed in different periodicals. I said, even though it's taken me a year and a half to publish these articles, I didn't want to change any of them now that they are being published together in a book. Why? 
לא לגרוע וגם לא להוסיף. I don't want to add, I don't want to take away. יקרא נא קורא דבריי. I wish for the reader to read my words כפי שיצאו מאיתי בכתיבה ראשונה מתוך הרגשת דלת פנימית והשראה מיוחדת. I want them to feel the passion that was through my pen, the, the emotion in which I wrote these words. I don't want to reformat them as a book. I want you to read them as the emotional words that I've written. And then he says in the end of that paragraph, I also chose not to get involved in any halachic debates. He said, I intended with this booklet more to penetrate the heart than to penetrate the mind. With hope, that just as these words left the depths of my heart, that they also will enter the depths of the heart of my readers. And regardless of what you feel, about reconvening a Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim, I think it's very hard to not get moved by the emotion with which Rabbi Yehuda Leib Maimon writes about this topic. He discusses here the Mahari Berav, Rabbi, which we spoke about two weeks ago in his dream of founding a Sanhedrin in Svat. Let's look at the last three sentences in that paragraph, the last three lines of the second paragraph on page two. Unfortunately, the dreams of that generation of Mahari Berav and Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo in Tzfat did not come to fruition. But if we, we the people who have merited to see the new state of Israel being born in its homeland, if they who tried so hard without a state of Israel to found the Sanhedrin, how much more so we who have a state of Israel are obligated to attempt to reconvene the Sanhedrin. Chachmenu Amu, our rabbis tell us in Maseret Bava Batra, Ruya hayta parashat nachalot likatev alidei Moshe, that the laws of inheritances were supposed to be, they were merited, they should have been written down by Moshe. Ela shezachu b'not tzlofchad v'nechdava al yadan. But the daughters of tzlofchad, who are the daughters of tzlofchad? Someone tell me the story. Oh, chazam. Who are the daughters of Slofchan? Um, they, if, that they were, they fought to inherit their father's fortune. Um, he didn't have a son, um, and they thought that they should inherit. And and essentially, they go to Moshe, and Moshe says, "I'm going to ask the Creator." He gets back and says, "Yes, they should." So we learn from their halachot regarding inheritance of daughters from their father. Our rabbis tell us in the Talmud that it should have been Moshe who should have taught us those halachot. But Moshe didn't merit, rather the daughters of Tzlofchad merited to teach these halachot to the Jewish people. It was a special zechut. So I also think that I'm deserving to say, that even if the previous generation was not successful in reconvening a Sanhedrin, I believe that our generation, like the daughters of Tzlofchad, should be able to have the merit to reconvene the Sanhedrin. But if they don't know, if they don't merit, and says, But I know for certain that if the great rabbis of our generation are too small-minded, and they are unable, they don't have in them the ability to do what's right, to rise up to the occasion and reconvene the Sanhedrin, as Baruli, it is clear to me, that the Sanhedrin will not be established by Moshe Rabbeinu, not by the greats of this generation, but by some small daughters of Tzlofchad. 
מה דמות ופנים, ומי יודע מה דמות ופנים תהיינה אז למוסד התורני העליון מוקדש זה. רבים מן הרבנים, says many of the rabbis, מורגל בפיהם לומר, they have this phrase in their mouth, whenever you ask them a sanedrin, they always say, עדיין לא הוכשר הדור, the generation is not yet ready, the generation is not yet deserving for a sanedrin. ורבים מבני הדור חוזרים ואומרים, And most of the people of the generation, when they're asked about a Sanhedrin, they're used to retorting, that our rabbis are not great enough yet to sit in a Sanhedrin. So the rabbis blame the people, the people blame the rabbis, everybody's blaming each other that the other one is the reason why there is no Sanhedrin. But I think that both of them are wrong. If the Creator gave us the ability in this generation to found the state of Israel, מוכשר הוא ורבניו גם לחדש את מוסד התורה העליון. So of course that it means that the rabbis of this generation and the people of this generation, both of them, will merit to found the Sanhedrin. And he writes, And he writes, אשרי מי שיזכה להניח את יסוד הסנהדרין המחודש בימינו, and how praiseworthy is the individual who will be able to lay the cornerstone. of the new Sanhedrin in our generation. Essentially, here, Ibu Dalai Memon is sharing with you his dream. His dream is, you tell me, and he writes this in so many words throughout his book. I said, I remember the people who told me that I was crazy when I was sitting in Berdichev and I was telling them, we're going to found the state of Israel. We're going to have a Jewish army one day. We're going to have a Jewish police force. And I remember they told me I was a lunatic. They used to send me out of the Batei Knesset. They told me this guy has lost his mind. He said, I remember the rabbis who made fun of me. I remember the, the donors who threw me out of their living rooms. He said, but guess what? Who's laughing now? He said, I'm here. We have a state of Israel. We have a Jewish army. We have a police force. And I'm not crazy. He said, so now I'm telling you that the next step is to have a Sanhedrin. So the same people are telling me that I'm crazy. And the same people tell me I'm losing my mind. The same people are telling me it's not the reality. It can never happen. It's not true. He said, but I'm telling you. that I know that it will happen, it just matters who will happen. If the rabbis can't do it, and the people won't do it, so some small people will do it, and they will lay the cornerstone of the new Sanhedrin. On page three of the PDF, he writes the following, and but I remember if you need to interrupt me at any point, please do. I just want to cover as much ground as I can before we have to end this show today. Yodan, he says, I know, that I know that the topic of this article of reconvening a Sanhedrin in our new state of Israel, I'll be uh, the victim of, the object of ridicule from different directions. It's not that I don't know that. says, I know that most people who hear this idea of reconvening a Sanhedrin will think it's some faraway fantasy. Like a blurry dream. This is Kabbalistic language that he's borrowing. Though he comes from a Lithuanian, like a Lithuanian, but a non-Hasidic Ashkenazi family, he spent much time in the shade of many Hasidic rabbis and uh, Hasidic communities, and he always connected very much that ideology into a certain, you'll always hear slight Kabbalistic references that he picked up on in the years that he spent there. He said whether it's from the right side or the left side of the political spectrum, They won't only think about this reluctantly. I know that they're even going to suspect me. They're going to be suspicious of why I'm talking so much about a Sanhedrin. The first camp. 
the religious right-wing camp, that's what he's calling them, he says, they'll look at me because anything that's new, the religious people can't handle. Any new conversation, anything that's progressive, anything that's groundbreaking, the religious community doesn't know how to deal with it. And the other side of the community, they're going to mock me and suspect me because I'm trying to revive something that's old. And they don't like anything that comes from the past. They only want things that are new. And they'll not just mock me and ridicule me, but they'll actually oppose me. Or at the very least, if they don't oppose me, he says, if they won't take me seriously enough to oppose me, at the very least they'll dismiss me like, oh look, this dreamer is coming. Who said that pasuk? Who said that Oh, the dreamer is coming. Where is that pasuk from? Very good, Itai. The brother is about Yosef. When Yosef has these dreams, oh look, this, this, uh, <clears throat> this dreamer is coming. So at the very least, they'll mock me as just a person who has fantasies. And I'm certain that even some of you readers who are reading these words, you're going to treat me like I'm a dreamer as well. And I must admit, from the day that I had an intellect in my mind, and from the day in which my imagination sprouted its wings, I have been dreaming since that day about the reconvening of a Sanhedrin. The same way that I dreamed about reconvening a state of Israel in the land of Israel. And that dream angel, the angel of dreams is still whispering in my ear just like he did then. Just like your dream regarding the Jewish state has come true, that you married to see with your own eyes, there will come a day. And also your dream of a Sanhedrin will once again come true. That angel of dreams whispers in my ear. He mentions in the next paragraph, that as the Jewish people move forward, things change. People's stances on things change. People's attitudes change. Society shifts. The way people look at things shifts. And if you remember Rav Uziel, Rav Uziel who said that as the world changes, Halakha has to reassess and reanalyze everything that's happening in the world. Says Rabbi Yudalit Maimon at the end of this next paragraph, knowing that all of these shifts are taking place in the world, that with this rebirth of a Jewish state of Israel, that in order to deal with these issues, we have no choice but to reconvene our own Sanhedrin again in the land of Israel. Then he writes the following. Before I'm going to write the rest of this book to explain to you the theological and halakhic ramifications. How can you reconvene a Sanhedrin? Why should we do it? I feel an obligation to share with you in clear words. That I, 
יסוד מדינת probably Israel, חושב על טבעה ומהותה ואיכותה של מדינתנו המחודשת. He's an I who was one of the dreamers and then later the warriors who gained independence for this state of Israel. This is what I feel about the state of Israel that I founded. מדינת ישראל, the state of Israel, צריכה להיות יונקת את החיים הרוחניים שלה. Must nurture its spiritual life מתוך מקור ישראל, from the source of Israel. מדינת ישראל בלי תורת ישראל, a state of Israel without a Torah of Israel, בלי משפט התורה שלנו, without our Jewish laws, לא תהיה מה שהיא צריכה להיות, will never become what it should become. בלי פתיחת מעיינות התורה, without opening the wellsprings of the Torah, בלי הפרחת המשפט, on page 4, העברי המקורי, without opening up the wellsprings of the original Hebrew laws, בלי החבטה ותחייתה של ספרותינו העתיקה, without the revival and the rejuvenation of our Jewish literature, books of rabbinic literature, לכל עומק הוראותיו ומובניו של מושג גדול זה, אין לקיים את מדינתנו בתור מדינת ישראל. It would be impossible to consider our country a Jewish state of Israel if it does not accomplish these things. I'll skip the next paragraph. And in order to reconvene our Sanhedrin, we don't need the compassion or the gifts of any kingdom or any officers. We don't need a UN resolution. We don't need any hypocritical governments to stamp their approval on our dream of a Sanhedrin. I never speak politics, but here Rebuda uh, Maimon is telling you this is not politics. This is the truth. He said every time a strong country does good things to a weak country like the state of Israel, they only do it for their own interests. And the moment they don't need you anymore, they push you away. And for anybody who thinks at any moment in time that anybody helps the state of Israel because they truly love them and not for some ulterior motive, uh, they're mistaken. We don't have to stray after, and this is a harsh word for stray, uh, stray after any uh, politics, the ever-changing political policies. He says that we don't even have to fight anybody. We don't even have to go up against the Arabs or those who incite the Arabs. That we won't have to get involved in anything political to found the Sanhedrin. So we also have no need to look good in front of the eyes of the other religions of the world. The hefek to the contrary. It's clear that all the nations of the world, especially the religious ones, will see in the reconvening of a Sandrin something powerful. Our honor will only grow. And the belief, the trust, the faith in our state of Israel will only grow and become stronger. It's for these reasons. Says Ribuda Lememon. Margish Ani, I feel ki eneni reshai lichbosh bekirbi machashavtizo, that I can no longer suppress this feeling inside of me. Ven Ani ben Chorin la Shirat Svuna bilibi, and I'm no longer given the freedom to hide this conversation about the Sanhedrin from you. 
רק למען לעשות נחת רוח לכל מיני נכשלים ופגענים. The only thing that I will do if I'm silent is to make all of these uh, naysayers happy. אשר אימת החדש, או הפחד מכל דבר ישן, מקים בהם את חוש העתיד. He said that these people are either afraid of the new or they're afraid of the old. Either way, they're afraid. He said, I don't want to have to deal with it. Rather, it's time for me to share with you my vision for us on Hedrin in the state of Israel. I think we should skip many, many pages. Give me a second. If you look on page 7 in your PDF, at the bottom of the page, Yubedalev Maimon is writing, he says, this entry that I'm writing into my book, says that this opposition became so harsh and so stiff, that I just couldn't continue writing about the Sanhedrin with a clear mind while I was still in the presence of people. So I feel like I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to have to go somewhere else in order to think clearly and not be persecuted for the things that I'm thinking and I feel that I need to share. If you look on page 9, on page 9, his next entry into his book says, Yoshev Ani Bechadri. I'm sitting in my room, the bottom of page 9. I'm sitting in my room. In a hidden corner of one of the mountaintops of our precious country. I'm enjoying my loneliness. From the silence that is taking over this room. And through my window I'm looking out at this hilltops of, 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 of Judea. And I'm seeing the wonders of nature that are part of our holy country. These same mountaintops which gave inspiration to the prophets to create a place in the land of Israel where people could share thoughts and ideas and philosophies. Ultimately this continued to be the headquarters of Kabbalah, of Chassidut, of all kinds of spiritual movements. And the top of the next page, page 10. Umisavivli, and surrounding me, Dmama, there's silence. Dmamat Eretz Yisrael Hanifla'a, the silence of the wondrous land of Israel. Hamechaka adayin legaon hazimra, shiavo vigalet sod shirata hagdola varazit. The silent land of Israel that is still waiting for someone to uncover from her depths her hidden inner song. And he began again talking about the Sanhedrin and how he remembers when that first book of Theodore Herzl came to his life and he heard about this idea of a state of Israel and he knew that it would never be complete without a Sanhedrin. And he continues writing more and more in this vein. On page 12 of the PDF, this is already the sixth chapter, Yehuda Le Maimon is feeling doubt. After great ideas, you should know what happens to everybody, even here, when I give a shiur, my wife will tell you, one of the first calls, my wife calls me right after my class to give me critique on the shoe. Was it a good shoe? Was it a bad shoe? Was it a boring shoe? Did I speak too much about this? And it's always the feedback. 
I've been teaching for years. I teach sometimes three or four classes in a day. But still, the end of a shoe, when one of you sent me a message, Rabbi, that was a nice shoe, or I didn't like something, or just the fact that someone is listening makes the shoe being worth it. When you just record something, and who knows if someone's going to listen to it, who knows who's going to read it. You write an article, you write an entry in a journal, you'll never know if someone is going to see it. There's a sipuk, there's a certain uh, spiritual satisfaction that comes to a person when you know that the words that are, mean so much to you are being heard by somebody else. In this case, it's a chesed you do for me. And here, Yudhal Maimon is worried. I'm, I'm not embarrassed to admit. When I started writing this book, there are all kinds of doubts that are pecking away at my mind. Who am I writing this book to? On behalf of who and for who? I already know that the written word, just like the living word in our generation, has lost its value. I know that written word doesn't mean what it used to mean. Today everybody writes. Today everybody publishes. Today you read so much text just by swiping through something on your phone. He didn't even know those things. That written word doesn't mean anything anymore. Who am I writing this for? Who even cares to listen? This paragraph is a very telling paragraph. For those of you who are writers, this is a very heart-wrenching paragraph just on, is it even worth writing anymore? People print newspapers, they just throw them in the trash the next day. People wrote articles, people wrote essays, people wrote opinion pieces, and then they just go to the trash, and no one reads them ever again. He questions whether the written word today has any value. He's feeling doubt. But then he says here that he's writing this chapter. Look at the last sentence of the long paragraph. But this chapter I'm writing with satisfaction. Why? Because this week a rabbi wrote me a letter saying that he read my article. He said, and this one rabbi who wrote me a letter saying he read my article, he gave life back to me. This idea of a Sanhedrin. He goes on to deal with the rabbi's letter. But you hear a person who's here, he founded the state of Israel, he has a vision, where should Israel go from here? And there's only crickets chirping. There's nobody listening anymore. Nobody cares anymore. And he's feeling the hurt, he's feeling the pain. And perhaps the last long paragraph I'll read for you is on page 14 of your PDF. In the ninth chapter. Here he writes about the damage that he suffered from talking too much about this idea of a Sanhedrin. In the middle of the page, I've done terrible things and I have lost out on my influence over the Jewish people. In the last few years, he said, in the last few years, and especially since I was, I merited to be a member of the first Israeli government. My star rose. And I became a person of influence in the religious community. But I sinned a terrible sin. I made the mistake. 
I began to write and to speak about this matter of a Sanhedrin. I wrote a few chapters about this topic. I spoke in some of the more religious elements of the Jewish community about this dream of convening a Sanhedrin. And I thought that I had managed to inspire people to this vision, to this idea. But lately, I began to feel that I feel that maybe I was wrong and that my, my desire to speak about this, my writing about this, has caused for me to lose my influence in the religious community. And most specifically, the rabbis have stopped listening to anything that I have to say. Uvdahi, it's a fact. Uvdama and it's a sad fact. But I think that any of us in our lives, we make choices. And sometimes those choices are good choices. But we know that by dealing with a certain topic, we're going to become an easy target for somebody else. And sometimes it's not a mistake. I'm not talking here about mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. I'm talking about a choice. It's a career move. I left this company to go work for a startup. And what happened? That startup went out of business, and then my original company doesn't want me back. And now I'm left without a panasa. This happens all the time. Sometimes we choose to speak up about an issue. And then we realize very quickly the issue that we chose to speak up about, it's not politically correct. The world doesn't want to hear it yet. How many of those who fought for civil rights back in the day lost everything they had for the things they chose to speak up about? So maybe today it's easy. Today everybody wants to be like that, but then it wasn't. Then they were like Avraham Avinu standing up against the whole world. Sometimes we make choices. By the way, you should know, now it's Pesach time. Everybody goes to this uh, Shiviti Pesach forum and they post foods and yeah, barbecue chips, are they good for Pesach? If I would give a class now on Facebook, how many people want to learn with me about my dream of a Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim? We're going to have exactly 17 people like we have right now, minus two because two of them are me on the screen. So 15 people. But if I'm going to give a class now, are Cheetos kosher for Pesach? You can imagine you might pull in a thousand people for that shield. It's something with the Jewish people. By the way, it happens this way. I knew, for example, that when I opened up my bedin for Giyu, I knew that when I opened up my bedin, I would become an easy target for people. It's very easy once you start getting involved in certain areas of Judaism to just write you off completely. You have to make choices. I don't regret any choices that I made, but you have to make choices with, with a lot of foresight and to be able to think forward. Is this going to harm me? Is this a parade I have to dance at? I was approached a number of years ago by an organization in Israel that does... Uh, independent weddings, and they wanted somebody who would be willing to take upon themselves the responsibility of the halachic side of the organization. I said no. Why no? Uh, very simple. I, I can't dance at every parade. You know, I can't be at every festival. I have to know what in life I came to do and what I didn't come to do. And Baruch Hashem, there's good people doing that work. I don't have to be part of that. Maimon feels the same thing here. It's a sad fact. People like public figures. At Asofer, authors. Sometimes they even like politicians. So long as they stick to the agenda, they stick to the company line of protecting the benefits of the people who they were appointed to take care of. So long as they're intent to stick to whatever has been said before and they don't try to do what Avraham Avinu did. 
Then the Midrash says that if Avraham Avinu, if the world took a stance on one thing, Avraham Avinu was always on the other side. Ivri, a Hebrew. Ivri also means a contrarian. Avraham Avinu was a contrarian. But if you ever worry, like why you don't fit in somewhere, why you're not mainstream enough, why you're not, it's because you're a child of Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu was defined, not a rabbi, not a tzaddik, Avraham Ha-Ivri, Avraham the contrarian. That's who we are. That's part of being a Jewish person, is to be a contrarian. They will love you so long as you talk to them about whatever they want to hear. But if a dignified person, it doesn't make a difference who they are, will go out to the nation, and they'll attempt to broach a new subject, to talk about something that you shouldn't be talking about. That the other honoraries still don't like to hear about. At that moment, a person can lose everything they ever built in their life because they chose to talk about something they should not have spoken about. And that's my sin. That I published my book about the Sanhedrin without asking for the permission of the other rabbis who didn't want me to talk about it. That according to them, I was supposed to come and ask them permission to speak about this. To receive their approval. And this whole chapter talks about the persecution he felt for the hands of people who didn't want him to talk about this. And that maybe he is an ideologist, maybe he is an idealist, maybe there is an ideal here. But this ideal is one that is worth fighting for. And just because it sounds fantastical doesn't mean it can never happen. I want to leave you off just with the last page of his book. If you look at the PDF on page 16. We mentioned two weeks ago that in order to rebuild the Ben Mikdash, you need a Sanhedrin, to have Mashiach, you need a Sanhedrin. He mentions that if you look in the Shulchan Aruch, the Shulchan Aruch says that children, children, even if it comes to build the Ben Mikdash, they don't stop learning Torah. Do you remember this halakha? We don't stop children from learning Torah, even if they ask them to come build the Ben Mikdash. Now here's an interesting question. We know the Shulchan Aruch doesn't talk about anything that happens in the days of Mashiach. Shulchan Aruch only talks about things that happen while the Jews are in exile mode. And he uses that piece to show that this building of the Ben Mikdash, which has to be you know, preceded by the founding of a Sanhedrin, is something that exists before the Mashiach, before anything else, that we have the obligation to put those things in order. Nonetheless, he writes here at the bottom of page 16 in your PDF. It says there was one mistake that our rabbis of Tzfat made. They said that they maybe made a mistake. And the mistake was that they chose to replace Jerusalem with Sfat. And maybe had they been a little more savvy and realized that let's go to Jerusalem, let's make a Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, it could be that, that idea would have happened. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, that generation was not ready for a Sanhedrin. The dream of Don Yosef. Who's Don Yosef? You guys know Don Yosef? You guys familiar with Dona Gracia? Yeah. This family, Dona Gracia, if you were going to ask me who is the founder of the modern state of Israel, I will tell you Dona Gracia. 
Who was the first man who had the dream of the state of Israel? First of all, it wasn't a man and it wasn't Theodore Herzl. It was Dona Gracia. It was a woman, a righteous woman, perhaps one of the most influential Jewish women in our history. Uh, one of my heroes. So this is Don Yosef Anasi. Lo nidgashem. Those dreams didn't come to fruition. On page 17 of the PDF. Shlomo Molcho. Remember we spoke about Rabbi Shlomo Molcho? Nisraf al-Dushat Hashem. He was burned alive. He was forced to run away from Tzvat. And none of those dreams of a Sanhedrin ever came true. Not because those ideas were against Halakha. Rather, why did they fail? Because it was against what people were feeling in those days. We have merited to see the revival of the state of Israel and the capital restored to Jerusalem. Our rabbis. They have in their hands the power to reconvene a Sanhedrin and to restore Semicha. Even the Maharal Bach, Rabbi Levi bin Khabib, the opponent of Mari Berav, we spoke about two weeks ago, even he wasn't in theory opposed to a Sanhedrin. He was opposed to the way in which it came about. It's a time to do for God. The great time has come. And it's an obligation on the leaders of our people. The rabbis of the land of Israel. To arise. And to feel the wings of the Shekhinah. To hear the divine voice that is calling out to them. That now is the time to reconvene Sanhedrin. He says, if we don't miss this opportunity, we have before us the ability to reconvene a Sanhedrin, to restore Semicha, to give back to the state of Israel the Jewish flavor that it is so missing. And with this, he ends his book. And like I told you, in the year 1962, Rabbi Udale Maimon dies, he passes away, and this idea seems to pass away with him. There were two more attempts to reconvene a Sanhedrin, I believe one in 2002, one in 2004. They went to Tveria and they reconvened a Sanhedrin. Rabbi Steinzaltz, who just passed away, he was the head of that newly reconvened Sanhedrin. I don't ever say this on camera, but I figure we're talking about it, we might as well. Hava Peretz, my rabbi, was one of the 70 rabbis who were appointed to be a member of the Sanhedrin, the newly reconvened Sanhedrin uh, in, uh, that was at the time done in the early 2000s. Those dreams never came to fruition. We're still waiting. And I think that we're continuing to play this game of let's blame the rabbis, let's blame the people. Nobody's ready, nobody's ready. Meanwhile, there's only one thing I can tell you. I don't know if we're ready for Sanhedrin or not. What I do know is that there are problems facing the Jewish community today. Now, real problems, real world issues, that I'm not sure that any individual, independent, chacham, organization, great leader, will be able to do on their own. There are certain issues, certain reassessments of Judaism that need to happen, they need conversations that need to take place, authoritative decisions need to be made. But there's no one to make them. And there's no one to turn to to make them.
and there's no one to talk about Chachamim. There's a reality here that we need to contend with. There are things that we need to deal with that maybe we're not equipped to deal with. And the answer for that should be a Sanhedrin. I'm aware of Sarla, who I don't think is here right now. But last week said, and there's also dangers of a Sanhedrin. There's dangers of putting authority all in one place. There's danger. Well, that's why a Sanhedrin works the way a Sanhedrin works. And we're not asking for a king. And we're not asking for a monarch. We're asking for a group of, of a variety of Talmidei Chachamim to get together, to make it, have a discussion, to figure out a way to make all of the problems of Judaism not go away, but to find intelligent, innovative, clever solutions for them that will bring us about to the next era of humanity, which should be the days of Mashiach. May we merit to live and see that happen very soon in our day. For right now, all I can do is pray. Hashiva shoftenu kevarishona what we say in our Amidah prayer Hashem restore our judges to what they used to be first I think in order to restore our judges Hashem has to restore to our judges the wisdom that they used to have He has to restore to our leadership the foresight the, the ability to see the world in a unique way and those Chachamim those leaders of the Jewish people should lead us forward in the future of right now we'll do what we can together and Bezat Hashem I hope to live and see that day come to us very very soon thank you so much for learning with me this week God willing I will see you next week for our shiul on the next part of this topic and Bezat Hashem will finish all of this uh, part of the introduction before Pesach comes I have it down exactly to the week uh, before Pesach Bezat Hashem and